0: Me in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 here this morning. God tells us that when a man and a woman marry, they are no longer two, but one. And so I could ask a married couple, I could sit down with them and I could ask them a question like this. How strong is your oneness? How strong is your marriage bond? Uh, how unified and close are you? And they might respond something like this, well, you know, uh, we haven't had any fights or big arguments recently that I can think of at all. Or they might say, actually, we just had a doozy. He was yelling, she threw the ring, somebody said, it's over. Okay, well, that's obviously not a good sign. But is the presence or absence of big arguments, blow-ups, and conflict the sole determiner of the unity and oneness of a marriage? And we'd say, well, of course not. We What might actually be more telling are actually all the, the smaller interactions. Sure, they may never fight, but he never just reaches over and holds her hand or, or puts his arm around her just because. She's perpetually irritable, moody, and harsh. He is bitter from 100 little undealt with relational paper cuts. She always insists on her own way and is constantly telling him all of his little faults and quick to point them out. He actually has a lot of anger. It's underground, you don't really see it, but man, it is there. He won't listen to any of her ideas or suggestions. They're constantly like, you know what, let's just agree to disagree because this is just not worth it. Let's try to just peacefully coexist here. And truthfully, they're just tolerating each other. But that's not unity. That's not oneness. It's interesting that God says that the church is one. And much like in marriage, that unity, sure, it is seen in the the presence or absence of major conflict like church splits and volatile business meetings where people are blowing up. But truthfully, it's all the day-to-day smaller interactions and attitudes that tell the story of the unity of the church, the unity of the body. It's all too easy for us to minimize God's plan for the church. And God gave us books like the book of Ephesians so that we would grasp the fullness and the magnitude of God's plan for his people. Ephesians chapter 1 to 3, the way that this book works, the first three chapters just unpack major doctrine after doctrine after doctrine, truth after truth after truth that take us up into the heavenly realm to just marvel at the gospel. And then chapters 4 to 6, the second half of the book, take those massive, awesome doctrines and they apply them into everyday life in the body. And in those final three chapters, Paul takes up the metaphor of walking to convey how the Christian life should be conducted or lived. Uh, There are ways that we should live. There are ways that we should walk. There are ways that we should uh, talk together and all these different things in our covenant reflects that last week we started a sermon series through uh, the commitments in our covenant we looked at a couple last week today we're going to jump to number six you'll notice i'm skipping a few one of our elders greg hunter is going to come back and grab those several weeks from now but that leaves us with the sixth one here today which reads as follows i will walk in brotherly love with the members of this church endeavoring to preserve the unity created by the Spirit. This idea of walking in love and walking in unity, all those little interactions. God wants you to walk in brotherly love with the members of this church, endeavoring or striving to maintain or preserve the unity that has been created by the Spirit. I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 here briefly. We read there, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And then notice this next verse, verse 2, we're told, and walk, and and again, this metaphor of living and and the way that we conduct ourselves, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Here's his command, walk in love. Uh, What we're doing with this series through the covenant, we're just kind of following the same outline Every time, uh, five simple realities about all these commitments or pursuits. And the first one that we look at again today and where we will spend the bulk of our time is this reality. uh, this, This commitment in our covenant, it is a biblical commitment. The sixth commitment in our covenant is essentially a direct quotation of Scripture. As we saw in Ephesians 5 verse 2, that verse commands us to walk in love as Christ loved us. Christ loved us a certain way and we should love each other that same kind of way and to the same kind of degree. And the second half of the sixth commitment in our covenant comes from Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3. So I want to ask you to turn back to Ephesians 4. And I'm going to read the first three verses if you want to follow along there. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, with patience. Bearing with one another in love. And then giving special attention here to verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Uh, We are going to give special attention to that last phrase, the one in verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Uh, That phrase actually teaches us at least four things about our unity. Four facts about our unity that we want to note Uh, First of all, our unity exists as a present and eternal gospel reality. In other words, this verse is saying that it exists now, right now, and it will exist forever. God is not commanding you and I to create or foster or build unity. Other passages of Scripture may kind of encourage us that way, but not this one. The command of this particular verse is not to somehow strive to attain unity, but to maintain it. Maintain the unity of the Spirit. We are one in Christ, and and Paul is making it very clear. This is a present reality, and it is eternal gospel reality. Verse 3 calls our unity the unity of the Spirit. And the idea there is that the Holy Spirit has produced this unity. He is its author or originator. If we bit, uh, dip back into the doctrinal portion of Ephesians chapter 1-3, to three, uh, we see the truth that this application in, in chapter 4 flows out of. Namely, that God, through the saving work of Jesus Christ, And the unifying work of the Holy Spirit made Jew and Gentile one new people, his people, the church. We are one. Look back at chapter 2, and I want to read verses 13 to 16. Ephesians 2, 13 to 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, and that's a reference to the, the Gentile people, you who were once far off have been brought near by what? By the blood of Christ. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both Jew and Gentile one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What we just read about there, God did that in the past. He took Jew and Gentile and he made them one, tore down all the walls and barriers between them, everything, and made them one new people, the church. As was the case with the Jews and Gentiles, Jesus is already torn down whatever walls may have divided us. He has already killed whatever hostilities may have stood between us. This is fact, God says. We are one in Christ, a present and eternal gospel reality. And by the way, this reality goes far beyond the walls of Beaumont Baptist Church. We could read this and think, okay, this is true here. Yes, it is true here. But this is true in our church relationships with other churches. This is true of of all of God's people all around the globe. We are one in Christ. We are his people. And so God is not commanding us to create unity. God, rather, is commanding us to live it. And more specifically, he is calling us to maintain it. Maintain what already exists. I created something. Maintain it. It's like home ownership. Most of you probably didn't build your house. Maybe someone here did, but that's not what most of us have done. Someone else probably built your house decades ago. But if you believe that your home has value, and I'm guessing that most of you do, it's, it's probably of all your earthly possessions, if there's one thing that has the most value, it's probably your house. If you believe that it has value, you're probably going to do your best to maintain it. Someone built our house over 90 years ago this year. I wasn't even born yet. I didn't build it. But I spend a ton of time, effort, energy, and resources maintaining our home. It is constant and never ending. And for 84 years before me, other people did that same thing to varying degrees. That's how home ownership goes. You don't really think about that when you buy a house. Like, oh, yeah, like this is going to cost money to maintain and time. It's just going to go and go and go and go. But that's how homeownership works. And here God has made something. He has made something awesome and beautiful and incredible. And he's calling to us, what I have made, I want you to maintain. You maintain that unity. This beautiful unity already created by the Holy Spirit demands our attention, which brings us to our second fact about our unity. Our unity must be zealously guarded and preserved. Verse 3 tells us that we should be eager to maintain it. And that phrase there, eager to maintain, is actually the translation of just two Greek words. And the first word has the idea of being zealous or eager. Uh, the idea of taking great pains. Or, or we might word it this way, to make every effort. And the second word means to keep watch over, to guard, to preserve. And so if you take those two words and you put them together, you get this idea of, zealous effort towards guarding and maintaining the unity that's already in existence. One winter, my wife and I uh, watched a documentary on the U.S. Secret Service. You know how winter goes. It's just been snowing and snowing and it's dark outside. And so here we are in front of our TV watching a documentary (laughs) on the U.S. Secret Service. Well, when the U.S. President Uh, When you see the U.S. president, he's always surrounded by his bodyguards, and he travels in this massive motorcade of armed vehicles, bulletproof vehicles. Uh, And that's really just like the tip of the iceberg. That may be what we see. But if the president is scheduled to speak at an event, the Secret Service actually spends weeks and weeks in advance planning out everything. I mean, can you imagine trying to keep one guy safe in the middle of like a massive arena? It's going to take a lot of work, a lot of planning, a lot of thought. It's actually quite elaborate. And God is calling us here to do something like that, to zealously guard and protect something. And I say this with great respect, but what God is calling us to do is of infinite greater value. What God is calling us to protect and preserve is of infinite greater value than the well-being of a government official. And it is going to require great effort on our end. And I think what happens is sometimes we find ourselves in that situation, you know, in, uh, like in the great effort stage. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I don't know. In our, in our hearts, we may push back, you know, that person or this happened. I just don't know that it's worth all the effort that one's going to take. And I think we do well to ask ourselves in this uh, th- that question in, the, in in those moments. At what cost was this unity Originally created. And according to chapter 2 verse 13 that uh, we already looked at there. It was created at the cost of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the price tag. So the effort that God is calling you to put in. When you think at it in, in comparison is really nothing. Absolutely nothing in comparison to what Christ has already put forth for this. Your God, your Savior, commands you to zealously defend and preserve it. And again, much like what we looked at last week, th- this is not some kind of suggestion. It is a command from the Lord, and that becomes very obvious as we consider this phrase in its context. In verse 1 of chapter 4, if you look back there, it begins, Paul writes, I therefore, uh, that little word therefore is pointing backwards to something. I therefore, in other words, on the basis of all the profound gospel truths of Ephesians chapter 1 to 3, all these heavenly awesome realities, on the basis of all that, I urge you or I exhort you to walk a certain way in a verse 3 kind of manner. This is imperative. Your Savior commands you to zealously defend and preserve the unity of the Spirit. But that's not all. It's not just that God is commanding this here. Your calling demands that you zealously defend and preserve it. Look back at verse 1 and just notice the language again. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you. I exhort you to walk in a manner, what? That is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Uh, The calling language. What is that referring to? Well, it relates to when God uh, summoned you to salvation. And, and maybe you look back and you can like remember like the moment that happened with great distinction. It was just like, boom. Maybe you don't. Maybe it's kind of a blur, but you know what happened. But it, it's referring to God summoning you to salvation. God called us, all all those of us who have put our trust in him, he called us to salvation. And when he called us into salvation, he he, he called us to himself. And in so doing, he called us into his body, the church, and into union and oneness with him and union and oneness with his people. And now we are to walk or live in a way that corresponds to the weightiness of that salvation calling. Uh, Maybe I could try to give you an analogy that would be helpful here. You could think of an ancient set of scales. And basically, on the one side of those scales, if you take your calling to salvation and you put it on the one side of the scales, as soon as your calling hits the one side of the scales, it's just like, boom. I mean, this thing, this is awesome. This is heavy. This is weighty. Just straight to the floor with its weight. And you've got the other end of the scales. It's all the way up here. And what this text is saying is that the way that you walk, the way that you live, is basically what goes on the other side of the scales. And it needs to to match that. It needs to, to correspond to that and wait. And hang in perfect balance. To state it in the negative, if you are not zealously defending and preserving the unity of the Spirit then what that means is you are not living in a a way that corresponds to the greatness and magnitude of your salvation. In fact, you're actually disgracing it and the Lord himself who summoned you to that salvation, who called you to that salvation. This is a weighty responsibility. The way you live needs to match your salvation. A third fact about our unity Our unity should manifest itself in the bonds of peace. Uh, Verse 3 mentions the unity of the Spirit, this unity that was created by the Spirit in the bonds of peace. Our unity should be betrayed by a bond that is between us. There should be a beautiful peace between us, binding us together. What is it that bonds us, the body of Christ, together like that in peace? The bonds of peace, or the bond which is peace. Chapter 2, verse 14 tells us that he himself, Christ, is our peace. Christ has established peace between us, and that peace should shine forth. We should see these bonds, these ties of peace. And so we may ask ourselves this question, Okay, I agree, I mean, obviously, how do we argue with this? I mean, this is the gospel lived out in our lives. So how in practice do we maintain the unity that God has already created? And with that question, we come to a fourth fact about our our unity. And I I just really love this one. Our unity cannot thrive without its friends. If we were to go to a school playground or cafeteria tomorrow and observe, I don't know, maybe a, a junior high, we would no doubt see pockets and clusters of friends who are always together, inseparable. I mean, if we were in an elementary school and we went out for recess, we might see a group of boys who always play at recess together. They're always out on the field playing soccer together. They're just this pack of boys that always goes together. Or we might see a a pack of girls uh, who are always in the corner chatting and giggling and laughing and going to the washroom together, whatever else they're going to do. But they're together, (laughs) right? They just go as a herd. They are inseparable Likewise, that is how our unity is described. It has some very close companions. And wherever you see unity, you will likely find her friends. And if those friends are not coming, the the fact of the matter is, is that she is probably not coming either. And verse 2 tells us the names of, of unity's friends. The names are humility, gentleness patience, and loving forbearance. When those four friends show up, when they come together, more than likely unity is coming too. But I should also mention that for each of these friends, there is a corresponding enemy. And the truth is, when any of those enemies gets invited, it's pretty common for unity to leave. I'm going to go now. She goes home. So let's talk about Unity's companions and all of these companions to unity, they, they all hang under this umbrella of walking in a way that's that's worthy of your calling. Live in this kind of manner with one another. Your calling demands, first of all, we see humility. Verse 2 is it after talking about living in a way that's worthy or, or corresponding to your calling, verse 2 says, here's the manner in which What that looks like with all or the highest degree of humility. Humility is a beautiful thing. You probably admire it in others. If you are walking in a humble manner, you will not think highly of yourself at all. You you will not be the center of everything. You will not insist on your own way. You will not boast or put yourself in the spotlight. You will perpetually put other people in front of you. And unity just loves that. Unity just loves humility. They're like magnets that just pull uh, towards each other. But alternatively, you could relate to the people of this body with pride and arrogance. Pride is as ugly as it is destructive. And the Bible tells us that it brings strife. Uh, Remember Proverbs 13, verse 10, that says that arrogance leads to nothing but strife. Maybe you memorized it this way. Only by pride comes contention. Is it any wonder that when arrogance shows up, unity leaves? They just don't go together. They just don't. They are not friends. Your calling not only demands humility, it also demands gentleness, otherwise known as meekness. Verse 2 talks about us walking with all or the highest degree of gentleness. Uh, Gentleness is is never self-asserting or even slightly rude, let alone harsh. Gentleness means that your emotions don't get the best of you, that they are under control. Gentleness never seeks revenge, no matter how you're treated. Uh, What's interesting, though, with gentleness is people hear that and they mistake it with weakness. When reality, gentleness or meekness is much like a tamed horse or or a war horse. You think about uh, an animal that is strong and powerful, and yet a saddle can be put on it, and it can have a bridle, and a rider can hop on there and, and ride it. Gentleness or meekness really has the idea of strength that is under control. We are not talking about a person who does not have strengths and passions and emotions and those sorts of things, but those things are bridled. And to give you an example of this from the scriptures, Moses, who we think of as someone who was quite strong and at times quite fiery, okay, Moses was not like Mr. Wallflower. He is leading a nation through the wilderness, through all sorts of conflict, through all sorts of trouble. He is a relatively strong personality. And Numbers 12 verse 3 says of Moses that he was very meek. In fact, more than all the people who are on the face of the earth. If you want a human example of meekness, then look at Moses. And Jesus also described himself as this way. He said, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and yet we turn around and we see Jesus throwing tables over in the temple, the tables of the money changers. Gentleness gets angry at the right time, but never at the wrong time and never in the wrong way. And in fact, when problems need addressed in relationships and church life and those sorts of things, everyone is glad that the gentle person is there, someone who's strong. Someone who is passionate about what is right and cares that things be done right in a way that honors God. But that strength is under control. Unity loves gentleness. Think about the flip side of that. I gave you this picture of the horse. Instead, you could be unbridled. Prone to speak all your mind, you know, just out it all comes. Easily angered and emotionally volatile, rude, harsh, and hurtful. Uh, When you relate to others in an unbridled fashion, unity leaves. Unbridled interactions drive it away. Your calling demands something else too. Your calling demands patience. Verse 2 mentions that next. Uh, Patience means having a fuse longer than anything that you could possibly imagine. You must exercise immense self-restraint that keeps from retaliating when you are wrong. You, you do realize that if you function as part of the body for any length of time, that the people sitting in these chairs right here with you are going to wrong you and hurt you. And frankly, you will probably do the exact same thing to them. You must exercise extreme reluctance to avenge wrongs. That, that is not my space. God expects you to be patient with people like he is. Unity loves patience. Alternatively, if you think about a really long fuse, this this patience, this endurance. Alternatively, you could be a firecracker. When I was a kid, I just loved to play with fireworks, cheap fireworks with fuses that were like this long. You light it and it's got to go. You could be a firecracker. You could have a fuse that's so short that beware, if that thing gets lit, then everybody around you just has milliseconds to dive for the bushes. As soon as you notice a problem or you don't like something, you tell people. And it's often with a critical spirit. As soon as someone's a disappointment or they sin against you, it's, here it is. That sort of thing drives away unity. One more, your calling demands loving forbearance. Verse two says, bearing with one another in love. I find this fascinating and refreshing to know that God's not ex- expecting us to sit around all day and church life always feeling those warm fuzzies towards each other. Wow, I mean, these people are perfect. No one here ever gets on my nerves. I just love them all. <laughs> That'd be great. Right. But actually, God gives us a verse here that indicates that that God's assuming that that's not going to be the case. There's not inherently something wrong with you because something about somebody else bothers you and gets under your skin a little bit where you're like, I just kind of prefer if they weren't like that. God is calling you to loving forbearance, which involves lovingly tolerating the differences between you and other people. We're not all robots. We don't all look exactly like each other. God didn't make us in a factory and produce us all just like one another. Think about the the differences between the methodical person and the free spirit. The really organized person and, and the disorganized person. The person who is the life of the party and the person who is reserved and would die if they were that person. Now you think about the person that's just physically affectionate. They, they see you at church and it's just like, boom, big hug and it's warm and it's affectionate. And then there's the person who preferred social distancing before it was ever even a thing. And they're just like, don't touch me. I need my six feet. And then there are people that, honestly, they are just different. And maybe very different from you. And and this thing called loving forbearance can handle that. Imagine you grew up in a home, and honestly, you may not have to, to imagine what I'm about to share, but imagine that you grew up in a home where your parents were not very good cooks, and they could never quite get the meal right. I mean, just consistently. But you learned to lovingly just not say anything to your parents. In fact, you you just learn to to express your appreciation and gratitude for your food. I think that lesson needs to carry over into your relationships in the church because what happens, sure enough, in church life, there is that spicy person. (laughs) You're like, whoa, like too much. And then there's the person, I mean, they are salty. like I need some water. The super bland person, that person is so boring. The cold person, the scalding hot person, the burnt hard crunchy person. I mean, you just think about it. We're, we have problems. And the person that just represents the very opposite of everything that you prefer. And God calls you to bear with those people in love. What's the alternative? Well, you could be intolerant. And by the way, when I use tolerance, it's often used in our world. I just need to tolerate all sorts of sin and that sort of thing. That, that's not the sense in which I'm using it. But you could be intolerant where you don't tolerate anybody's imperfections. You don't tolerate anybody's annoyances or differences. You're quick to point out people's flaws and expect people to to change immediately. You're quick to point out the problems with any situation. It's not right. And it doesn't matter what the mood is, you can kill it. And, and by the way, just I think it's extremely important that we notice the modifier here, that it is in love, forbearing with one another in love. If you lose that modifier, you have lost what God is talking about here. What happens if you have forbearance, but it is not coupled with love? What is forbearance minus love? And what does it turn into? Well, that's going to turn into bitterness really fast. That's going to turn into resentment and anger and all sorts of other terrible things. You might be tolerating, okay, I'm putting up with this person, but I'm not liking it. I just wish they would go to a different church. But I'm tolerating them. That's not love. And you can end up just being a grump. Intolerance drives unity away. God wants you to walk in brotherly love with the members of this church, endeavoring to preserve or maintain the unity created by the Spirit. That is a biblical commitment, uh, and that's all the very first point of our outline. Right? That we look at this is what the Bible says. Our second reality about this commitment is that it is a threatened commitment. God calls us to maintain or guard. Our unity, it needs protecting. And it needs protecting from the attacks that are right in here. And it needs protecting from attacks uh, without. But we might ask, well, what is it threatened by? And if there's anything that it's threatened by, it would be threatened by our sin. The enemies of the virtues in verse 2. Our unity is threatened by our arrogant, unbridled, firecracker, and intolerant selves. Us. And so the very first place I think that all of us should look at when we look at this verse is then to look in the mirror. Like, what what about me? God wants you to walk in brotherly love with the members of this church, endeavoring to preserve this unity created by the Spirit. It is a threatened commitment. It is your sin that will threaten it. It is my sin. And so we all must first start by looking in the mirror. What about me? And when we see these these enemies of unity, God, forgive me. You shed your blood for this, and my sin is attacking what you died for. God, would you forgive me? And it's often not just a God, would you forgive me conversation. It's I need to go talk to this person or that person or this other person. Hey, would you forgive me? I was not patient with you. When I spoke to you, I was arrogant and full of pride. I was not kind. Please forgive me. Third simple reality. It is a very practical commitment. God is calling you to demonstrate the highest degree of humility and gentleness towards the members of this body. He's calling you to patience and loving forbearance with the people of this church. And all these things are very down to earth, grassroots ideas, and, and they just show up in everyday life in the body. And the team that you serve with, some of you are... On music slash worship teams. Some of you are on the setup crew. Others of you are on a team basically serving in our kids' class or nursery or, or other spaces that you are working with other people, serving with other people. And sure, I mean, th- there's going to be the person that's always late, the person that's unreliable, the person with strong opinions, the person that doesn't flex. Think about what happens when our relational expectations are not met. I thought you were going to be here for me. When other people sin against you in big ways or small ways, when people say hurtful things, when people express their ingratitude, when people just say things that are dense, like do you not realize what you're saying and how that comes across and how that's going to be taken by this person or everybody? In our hard conversations and actions, sometimes in church life, think about a, a scenario like church discipline where we we have to do something very difficult as a body or or anytime a church makes any kind of major decision you know, about direction oh well we're gonna we're gonna do this or we're gonna do that I mean these are moments for potentially great tension. God wants you and I to walk in brotherly love with the members of this church, endeavoring to preserve the unity created by the Spirit. It's a practical commitment. Number four, it is a grace-required commitment. Like with all these things, you have to put effort in. God, I, I, I want to do the right thing here. But this is not something that you can do in your own strength. And again, you need God's help and grace. And I would just draw your attention back to chapter 3. And I would like to just read part of Paul's prayer there in chapter 3, verses 14 and 19. But as I read it, I want your eyes to just park on verse 16. Paul writes For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, and then notice just these next few phrases, he may grant you to be strengthened. With power through His Spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Just two paragraphs before the one we're looking at, we're reading a statement about God granting people strength. And the Holy Spirit's power and the inner being. This is the sort of thing that we need for all of the Christian life. We need God's help and grace. God gives us the strength. And the Holy Spirit gives us his power to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit. And without God's help, we will fail. God wants you to walk in brotherly love towards the members of this church. It is a grace-required commitment. And finally, number five, it is a gospel-driven commitment. The structure of Ephesians powerfully demonstrates that for us. That gospel living is built on gospel doctrine and all of its realities. The gospel undergirds and motivates us to maintain unity. Three chapters of gospel truth that Paul lays before uh, fleshing out, putting meat on those bones. Here's how you live. And so I just want to draw your attention to a couple texts that highlight the gospel nature of all this look back at chapter 5 verses 1 to 2 again therefore be imitators of god as beloved children and, and walk in love and notice the phrase that's tied to this walk in love language as christ loved us and gave himself for us christ loved us he died for us on the cross and it is that that's behind the way that we walk and that we live If you look back at chapter 2, verses 14 and 16 again, we've got these gospel truths. Chapter 2, verse 14 For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and is broken down in his flesh. We're talking about Christ bodily coming to earth and dying on the cross broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body. How? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. All of this is going back to Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and the gospel. The gospel must drive you to maintain unity. And much like with last week, nothing else will sufficiently fuel that commitment. God wants you to walk in brotherly love with the members of this body and endeavor to maintain the peace that the Holy Spirit has created, and that is a gospel-driven pursuit. And so again, we want to make the same three applications we did last week. First of all is to live it. God wants you to do this by His grace. Live it. And number two, pray it. Uh, take take a copy of our church covenant. If you didn't get one last week, they're on the red table there in the back. And take a copy of that and you pray these commitments for yourself, first of all. And what if you prayed them for the people of this body? That God would help all of us to maintain the unity that he has created. And number three, strive to make it contagious. One of the best ways that you can do this is by modeling it. I'm going to, by God's grace, try to live this way. But you can also help to lovingly and biblically, I think even at times, provided that, that you are, by God's grace, doing what's right. I think even to lovingly at times, shut down the attitudes and actions that move against unity. And you know, when someone's grumbling or complaining or being critical, I, I, God does sometimes call us to, you know, I, maybe I should say something here. i don't know, like, that's not okay. We want a culture that, by God's grace, reflects the gospel. We want to encourage, what what does that look like in practical life? God wants you again to walk in brotherly love, endeavoring to preserve the unity created by the Spirit. Would you bow your head with me at this time?